0: Things were, I think, improving. People were going to school. There wasn't as much violence as there had been previously. You know, from a legacy point of view, you just hope that they perhaps have a bit of a glimpse of that's a way of doing business instead of ruling with fear and violence.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've
0: made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, mm-hmm. we were out oh, there to do I did feel a lot of regret. My
1: friends were still getting killed.
0: It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite do often. Do I lead under fire? And that
1: was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to go up. you was to get a morning,
0: itself is um, horrific. It's a horror story. You should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious.
1: What you can do for
0: yourself or what can you do for your country? The
1: volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. I'm Sharon maskell and you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, we meet Brigadier Graeme Goodwin, CSC, who is currently the commander of 9th Brigade Australian Army. Brigadier Goodwin has had an extensive and significant career in both the Australian Defence Force and South Australia Police. His career has taken him on several deployments overseas, working with both the United Nations and NATO. Brigadier Goodwin, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line.
0: Hey Sharon, it's really good to be here and it's great
1: to be talking with you. So tell us a bit about your early life to begin with. Where did you grow up?
0: I'm a South Australian sort of through and through. I sort of grew up in the, uh, the, the suburb of Campbelltown. It was uh, I guess one of those areas, you know, probably not all that well to do uh, and the like. But it was a, you know, a pretty idyllic sort of childhood, you know, play cricket in the street and kick the footy around and do all those sorts of things. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but uh, it was just a great childhood. And, you know, all my best friends lived uh, close by. Yeah, it was a great life.
1: So when did the military come to have an influence in your life? Did you have anybody else in your family who'd also served?
0: Very distantly, there was a few great uncles and the, and the like, you know. Uh, I guess my parents came from country South Australia up in the um, Melrose, Flinders Ranges area. I did research a few few of them. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that was in World War One and they didn't survive very long uh, on the battlefield. So so there is a few people in the distant uh, past, but probably not not that much uh, in my recent sort of life, so to speak. But I guess as a kid growing up, you're, you're sort of thinking, what are you going to do and how are you going to do it? And uh, I guess, uh, you know, when I was uh, sort of, uh, you know, sort of teen- a teenager, you, uh, the way you, you joined the army was you'd cut out a, an application in the newspaper and fill it in and you'd post it off. And, uh, and that's eventually what I did. So uh, that's how it worked. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I joined at 17 and uh, joined the reserve. I had a good job at the time. I just started a job. Uh, and, uh, you know, my dad was pretty keen to see me keep going with my work and the like. So I thought the reserve offered a, a good opportunity to, to try, uh, try before you buy, so to speak, if I was going to go into the into the regular army, so to speak. But it um, uh, didn't eventually, it uh, didn't eventuate that way. And the rest is history, so to speak.
1: Did it meet your expectations then when you first joined up? What were you expecting perhaps the Defence Force to be like and what was the reality from your perspective?
0: Oh, look, um, Sharon, I, and I often say this, I was a 17-year-old kid, you know, I didn't know how to iron, you know, probably wasn't eating the right food. Uh, you know, uh, I was pretty fit, uh, you know, I liked that sort of stuff. And um, and I guess it was at that time when I joined and I did my recruit course out at Hampstead, the, 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 They, I guess the realisation hit a little bit because it was uh, when the Falklands War started. So they shut the gates and... And the like, and you think, well... You know, what's, uh, what could eventuate here and, and, and away you go. But uh, but what I say, you know, when, when I joined and the people I served with and all the rest of it, and I'm not um, denigrating or downplaying them and all the rest of it, I, I, I see the people who join now, undertake recruit training and uh, the like, uh, they were far smarter than I was. Uh, you know, they're far smarter, sharper, uh, more aware and all the rest of it. I guess I was on a bit of an adventure and, um, uh, uh, you know, it's it's landed me where it's landed me but uh, uh, you know when I first kicked off uh, you you know I I guess I I didn't I I actually liked the orderly get out of bed make your bed sort of sort of lifestyle and all the rest of it and that's probably set me up pretty well for 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 what's occurred later in life.
1: So what was the core that you were assigned to when you first joined up?
0: They gave you a magazine uh, prior to and they flicked through it and the like you sort of look at engineers and you you know look at um, MPs, you look at a number of things, and couldn't go past the infantry. Uh, that's the one one I chose, and and I guess later in life when I did my officer training, that's the the corps I chose uh, as as well. You know, I think uh, it's the one that uh, sort of suited me, and I like what it had to offer. Even even as a soldier, you know, working in a team, uh, relying on people and the like, uh, you know, that that was really attractive uh, to me and I really enjoyed that environment.
1: Now your first significant deployment was back in 2012 to East Timor, how did that come about?
0: I guess it was at that time where you think anybody, any soldier, any any person serving in defence, when you've done it for a long time and you've done a number of things, you've you've done your courses and you you look at your self-development, uh, you look at testing yourself and the like. I guess the ultimate test in those areas is is to go on deployment, on, on, on operations overseas. So I guess at that point in time, 2012, you know, I'd been working hard at my police career. So there was, I guess I sort of waited it more. On the police side, things were starting to stabilise there a little bit, where it gave me the opportunity to perhaps look at doing something and making a contribution uh, on on one of the operations overseas. So. I guess these things just don't happen because you want them to happen then, you know. So then you start making inquiries and the like. And I was quite lucky. I was doing some work out at uh, Defence Science and Technology Organisation, as it was uh, then, it's now Group. But I was doing a bit of work out there and just very fortunate to meet some people from uh, our uh, DOCUM, our uh, Officer Career Management Group, and uh, sort of said, well, these are the things I'd really like to do, you know, thinking, uh, you know, you could pick it off a like a bit of a smorgasbord, you know, that uh, what about this one? What about that one? And all the rest of it. And they uh, very quickly put me back uh, in my place and uh, said uh, none of that was available. But they did have something uh, which was um, available in East Timor. Uh, It was the Op Op Tower, Operation Tower, which was uh, attached to the uh, United Nations force there. Uh, I don't think it was all that popular. Uh, I don't know why. It was a 12-month deployment. So I immediately put my hand up for that and said I would go. And you know, and I guess that was probably mid-year. And then, of course, you don't hear anything until about November, and uh, and then the phone call comes, and it's uh, you've got to get your act together fairly quickly, uh, do your uh, pre-deployment training, had to do a combat medics course and the like, uh, so that. As soon as the notification came in, I had to effectively leave work at that point just to get all of those qualifications done. And um, yeah, just uh, I think it was just in the new year of 2020, uh, 2012. I and a couple of other one army guy and another navy guy we we jumped on the plane and, and, and that's sort of away we went. So yeah, it was a chance. But I I guess you've got to make your own chances and and the like. So you put yourself out there, stay qualified, stay uh, ready, stay current and all the rest of it. And and, uh, when the phone call comes, it's uh, away you go.
1: So take us back to the situation as it was at that time in East Timor. What were you stepping into?
0: I guess it was a fairly sort of stable period. It was 2012. It was, I think, the second election cycle was occurring that year. So when I went there, they had, uh, of course, the Australian New Zealand uh, International Stabilisation Force, the, the ISF. Uh, we weren't attached to that. We were attached to the what they called the Military Liaison Group, which was part of the UN in Obrigato barracks. I guess uh, I was one of many people, uh, we had a, uh, a Kiwi a New Zealand Colonel, uh, Colonel Martin Dransfield, uh, who was our commander at the time. And then there were, you know, a a large collection of uh, contributing nations. Our job at the time uh, was, it was about, uh, you know, border security and border incursions and, uh, you know, violence uh, on, on, in the border regions. I guess that expanded out to a degree where we uh, looked at food security and the like, uh, you know, being the UN force spread, uh, you know, all around East Timor, where we were sort of like on the ground so we could actually report on those things going forward. When I first arrived, it uh, it was quite interesting, uh, you know, because there was various roles and responsibilities, and and I was given um, um, a training role uh, at that point in time, and uh, I sort of thought, well, this is not why I'm here, but anyway, uh, it was the best thing that ever occurred because what we did then was we did a lot of uh, laws of armed conflict uh, training with the FFDTL at the time, uh, you know, and it, it was all about uh, rules of engagement, uh, humanitarian assistance, uh, keeping the peace, doing all those sorts of things. And I've done a bit of that in police uh, uh, work as well at, at a lower scale. So we cycled a lot of people through there and the like. And, and look, there was a little bit of violence uh, during the, uh, uh, the election cycle. But all in all, I think it was uh, it was uh, pretty peaceful, and, and the, the the government at the time actually commented on the on the fact that we'd done all of this training and we we'd actually invested heavily in guiding people through, and that uh, uh, you know there were ways of resolving um, some of these issues apart from um, going straight to uh, you know shooting and uh, and the like. So uh, you know that was a really really positive experience, and and as I say, uh, we got through the election, pretty in, in pretty good shape, and and pretty soon after that, that's when uh, the UN announced that they were withdrawing from the from the country. You know the job was done. Uh, so effectively, the the operation I was on, Optau, op that was the last sort of uh, I guess UN group there. You know, of course we've still got our defence cooperation people over there doing a magnificent job uh, but that was that particular phase of the UN operation and um, yeah no I found it exceedingly rewarding and worked with you know men and women from so many fantastic countries uh, that uh, we still stay in touch today to a degree you know and you know they were from diverse groups diverse backgrounds and the like but uh, we all came together and uh, you know they are really good friends really enjoyed their company and and still 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 do today.
1: So you mentioned the fact that there was an element of risk, that there was violence. How did you manage that at the time? Because obviously you were very experienced when you deployed, but still to be confronted with that in an operational scenario, it can be confronting.
0: Look, uh, I don't want to overstate that. I mean, I, I guess a lot of the violence, and there was a lot of violence actually directed towards the, the United Nations. Now, whether that was opportune or uh, directed, who knows, you know, why. But that, that resulted in a lot of smashing of uh, smashing up a vehicles, smashing of windows, doing all those sorts of things of things i and my colleagues i don't speak for them but i felt very safe uh, when i was there and uh, doing the things that i did you know we had our plans where you know if uh, things didn't occur i mean we weren't armed Um, of course we had our body armor and helmets and the like uh, as a form of protection but we had very we were living in the community we had really strong connections with the people in the community and you know they would sort of let us know when they were, I guess, concerned about things going on in the street and the like. So no, I, I think we had good mechanisms. We had good planning. These are things that you just work through while you're there. And I guess, uh, you know, once again, you know, my, my policing sort of stuff, I, I think I've confronted very similar things. So you've just got to treat it for what it is and be aware of it. Absolutely. And and make sure you plan for it accordingly, but you don't let it dominate your life. Otherwise, you know, as I used to say to some people, if you you know, particularly in East or if, if you let it dominate what you were doing, you would never leave the, the gate. You know, you would never go and do anything. You would never interact. And that would be a very sad 12 months to spend your life because it's a fantastic country f- filled with fantastic people who are trying to live their lives and, and have a good life because they've, um, you know, that hasn't always been the case.
1: Now, you were awarded a jobs Gold commendation off the back of that deployment. What can you tell us about that and how that came about?
0: Oh, look, look. I think I was very lucky. I think um, when you go on these things, you work hard. And that's an expectation, but it's, it's a good thing to do. You know, we did a lot of medical missions to very remote areas. Uh, you know, we did language training. Uh, we did a lot of training, uh, uh, as I say, uh, in trying to improve the... I guess the ethics and the standards of of the defense force and the like uh, I led a small team uh, they did a lot of hard work it was you know when you're doing work that's just really good work where you actually see really good outcomes it's not really work anymore it's it's uh, uh, you know it's just something that's just working for you and in the end, uh, while while I was there, I, I became the deputy uh, deputy commander. Uh, it was a fairly unique experience because we had a New Zealand commander and, a, a, and an Australian deputy commander, and they always tried to avoid that because of that ANZAC alliance sort of thing. But uh, I was given approval, uh, and uh, so away we went. And so our relationship was so strong, and the working bonds that we had with all of those particular groups. And so really, why was that? Well, uh, I think I was just very lucky in the right place at the right time and hopefully made a difference. And, uh, you know, some people, other people see that, but uh, you you don't do these things for those things. And uh, I, I was just thankful for the opportunity.
1: Let's turn now to your next significant posting, which was as the commanding officer of the 10th 27th Battalion, the Royal South Australia Regiments. And indeed, later on, we'll talk about your current role where you're now the commander of 9th Brigade that 1027 is part of. What was it like being posted into that role?
0: Well, it's, it's fairly uh, unique because It was while I was in East Timor, uh, there was a colonel and I forget his name, but there was a colonel in charge of the uh, International Stabilisation Force who who called me over, you know, invited me in for a coffee and you sort of go, what's going on here and all the rest of it? And he said, oh, well, um, I'm here to tell you that uh, one of us has got command and it's not me. It was a pretty big thing for me because I actually joined that unit as a soldier, you know, all those years ago. And so, you know, it was 10th Battalion at the time at the, at the Torrens Training Depot in Adelaide. And of course, they then linked 10th and the 27th Battalion. To go back as the commanding officer and i guess you aspire and you you work towards it and uh, uh, you do all the things that you're supposed to do to, to align yourself with that but there's no givens in in army or, or the defense force you know things could change and whatever and it's a very competitive process so it, it was just i i think it was it was just going to be a fantastic opportunity uh, to actually go back. And, you know, dare I say, you know, some of the people that I'd actually joined with as private soldiers were still there and the like. So the sense of responsibility and the sense of obligation and the sense of actually achieving stuff uh, wasn't lost on me. So it it was a very big honour, remains a very big honour, you know, and it's Uh, something that, uh, uh, you, you know, I'm very proud of, as every CO should be, as every commanding officer should be. A great responsibility, but it's your time, your time to actually develop people, make it a better place and all the rest of it. So that's very much what I've focused on.
1: And it was the Anzac centenary commemoration period back in 2014. Yeah. What did that mean to you at the time? Being back in 1027, where you started your career as a reservist, it must have had a real significance for you.
0: Look, it did. And, and, and I guess I do read a lot of history. I, I do like the personal stories. And, you know, I think it keeps you honest, you know, about why, why people did the things you, they did. And, and you get to enjoy the life you get to enjoy because of the sacrifices that other, other people make. It was, I guess, at a time too where, you know, it, it, we'd been building up, you know, it's coming, the centenary of ANZAC is coming and there'd been a lot of talk about it and all the rest of it and you're thinking, well, what am I going to do, uh, you know, uh, in, in that sort of period and all the rest of it. Not to get too lost in that either, because we've got to do other things as well. And, you know, we're not going to become just the, I guess, the ceremonial uh, battalion within South Australia. You know, we also had to make contributions to, you know, some of our operations, uh, you know, around uh, the globe, as well as um, domestically um, uh, with our uh, resolute uh, obligations. It was a, a really important time to engage uh, with, uh, you know, past members. Uh, it was really important to make that connection with past members and current members, so that everybody was included in that. It was important to include a lot of the associations and, you know, where we were heading and all the rest of it. But it was also important to temper uh, a, a lot of those things. And you look, I think I think we achieved that. There were some really good celebrations. There were some really good opportunities to get back into the community, you know, of where people were drawn from uh, that actually, you know, went on the ships over to, you know, Egypt, then on to Gallipoli and the like. Um, It was really important to recognise families uh, and, you know, wives, brothers, sisters, mothers, uncles, you know, grandmas and aunts and all. It was important to sort of include all of those people because, you know, once again, it's easy just to focus on the person carrying the rifle and all the rest of it. But I reflect on my own point of view there because, you know, as I said, you know, my my family came from the farm up in the Milrose area and, and they lost... A couple of their sons and so they were the ones who were going to carry on the farm so it it, it was you know apart from the devastation of uh, devastation of losing a uh, loved one you how are we going to keep this going and are we going to be able to stay here and in doing that process so many people came forward and said I found this old tin under the bed, you know, and uh, they open the tin, and there's the letters, and the, or a medal, or uh, whatever, and all the rest of it. So, it look, it was a great time, but it was also a great time uh, to serve and to do the things that we did. There were some good opportunities uh, for the units here in South Australia, and and I guess uh, you know that was probably. I guess the first opportunity I also had, you know, we had uh, seven Royal uh, Australia Regiment up the road. Uh, the commanding officer at the time was, uh, was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mal Wells. So it was a good opportunity to Actually, form a bit of a relationship with between the two battalions, uh, which endures today. And uh, Mal, uh, well, I see him quite regularly, and all, all the rest of it. So, it was a great working relationship, and you know, it it just again provided uh, some really good opportunities to the men and women who, you know, as I say, joined the reserve but had the ability to actually go on and do bigger and better things.
1: I remember there being the Freedom of the City parade yeah. through the centre of Adelaide. I remember being on the side of the road and watching you march up. I mean, that must have been as part of those centenary commemorations. That must have been a really big moment.
0: Because well, we did a parade uh, at Unley, uh, Unley's Own, the 27th uh, Battalion. We had the Freedom of Entry of Adelaide. The mayor uh, at the time, uh, you know, was a big supporter, had always assisted us wherever he could. And, and I guess that's a part of what I was saying earlier about it, it's just so good to include everybody, you know, give something back, include, you know, and you can only do that in a few ways. You know, there's not you, you know, you, you don't have a lot of scope to do big thing, whatever, and all the rest of it. So these smaller things were, were, were just, you know, an opportunity to, you know, include the people of Adelaide. We did the parade. Um, you know challenged by a friend of mine in the police <laughs> uh side so, uh, so there was a bit of a wink there but that's okay and then sort of went into the council chambers where you could have a bit of a tour and all the rest of it and uh, the exchanging of gifts and um the parchments and all the rest of it yeah no it look it's it's a fantastic thing and it just we just need to recognise that defence here in south australia the army the 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 wider defence force is held in such high regard and it's not something that I take lightly. It's not something I take for granted. It's it's something that's actually been, I think, well-earned, you know, and it's been earned through history, the people before me, the people after me and the like. And so, you you know, like, we enjoy a strong reputation here and, uh, and that beholds upon us that we just need to be very careful with that and actually remember those people that provide that support uh and assist us where where we can because their support whether it be in the family whether it be at local government whether it be at state government whether it be at federal government is just so critical to the things that we need to do and you know I, I find it's a bit of a force multiplier you know if we don't have that support well uh that just makes our job that little bit harder
1: we'll come back to that community Um, engagement and community response um, shortly but before we do that let's talk about your deployment to Afghanistan in 2016 because that was also a significant posting. What was happening in Afghanistan at that time?
0: I I guess you put your name down for some of these things and and they sort of turn around they go right you're uh, you're one of 500 you know, and uh, so when I, when I finished command of 1027, I, I took, uh, uh, you know, the family over to America. You know, my son's a basketballer and likes all things America and uh, all that, And we hadn't had a holiday for a long time, so we, away we went. And um, I hadn't said anything about maybe deploying again or anything. Uh, I always uh, had a strong leaning to go again uh, and to test myself in in a, in a different field or in a different country you know, it was, you know, one in 500, you know, one in 200, you know, one in 100, you know, one in 50. You... And uh, just before we uh, flew out, you know, you're down into the last 10, you know, and there's only one position. Uh, so uh, anyway, and I remember it very clearly, I was uh, in New Jersey watching a uh, ice hockey game. Uh, and uh, you get the phone call, uh, you're it. And away you go. now there was a bit my goodness, you know, I hadn't done a lot of planning for it, and I hadn't sort of, I guess, uh, told a lot of people about it. Uh, you know, thinking it would never occur, but it did. And um, so, uh, you know, I messed people around a little bit, going, "I need to get a few things lined up," uh, which I did, whilst I was still at the ice hockey, and uh, and then and then we sort of uh, went from there. But this was a sp- it, th- this particular task. It was uh, again an interesting one where it was a small group of people. We were uh, stationed in Kabul at the uh, uh, the Kabul International uh, Airport, HKI as, as it's well known. Um, and uh, we, as a team, I think there was about 12 of us under uh, the leadership of Colonel Andy MacBaron, were the advisors to the Kabul Garrison Command. Uh, now, that was, uh, it was, um, Uh, I guess the Kabul Garrison Command was a a group, it was police, uh, it was army and it was what they called the NDS, National Directorate of Security, Uh, or NDS I think it was, yeah. And so effectively what we were doing is is trying to get all of those three arms to work together to provide better security and protection for the people of Kabul. I guess things had calmed down to a degree there was still you know, the regular IED bomb uh, blast. There was the regular uh, execution uh, going on. There was the, maybe not so regular, but there, there were instances of, you know, coalition forces uh, uh, being killed by people who they were training. Uh, we were there, you know, but it, but it was relatively calm and stable uh, at, at, at the time. But I guess there was still a lot of, I guess, suspicion between police and army and and the security uh, and the intelligence agencies where, you know, they had to work together to actually get the, the benefit of providing the service that that they did. I uh, was the intelligence advisor. Um, I guess I got some of those skills because I run our state intelligence branch as, in the police. Um, so very fortunate there and very lucky. And And so we would... Assist them in conducting uh, proactive and reactive operations uh, within the Kabul area and 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 the near area where where you know the the near area which could influence uh, things things in Kabul. So. You know, it was patrolling. We, we would direct and, and assist them with patrolling, use of UAV, you know, and the like and, 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 and like that. So, you know, again, uh, I was very fortunate, very lucky, worked with a great team of people. We worked to a British commander uh, while we were there uh, who was a great commander. I just got to experience all of those facets of... Uh, security, operations, uh, public protection, and the like. And we would go daily uh, outside uh, the wire to their compound. It wasn't a, a large distance, uh, whatever. Um, and we worked side by side, you know, shoulder to shoulder, you know, like... Uh, and uh, th- they were good people uh, uh, who were trying to make a difference. Um, but, of course, we know what's occurred uh, since then. But um, you know, I think while we were there, uh, they were on a good track. They did require a lot more assistance and the like, but uh, I, I think there was a different As part of the whole coalition uh, force there, things were, I think, improving, you know, and I know that's easy to say, you know, but people were going to school. There wasn't as much violence as there had been previously. And when there was... Uh, you know, I remember this quite distinctly, you know, when there was a, uh, um, you know, a car bomb go off or, you know, something terrible occur in the community and all the rest of it, the population would come out quite strongly on their Facebook posts and all the rest of it and go, what's going on here? You know, this is this is Kabul in, you know, 2016. You know, like, this is not the Kabul of old, you know. This shouldn't occur and the like. So that's where you sort of think that, public attitude and community attitude would would actually, um, I guess, protect, you know, or or not allow these things to occur. But, of course, you know, it it, it didn't go um, the way we would have liked it have, to have gone.
1: What do you think, then, was the legacy of what your particular rotation achieved over that? Oh, look, it's probably
0: hard to see a, a strong legacy now, you know, not being able to go back and see what's sort of going on. I think the legacy, you know, and I equate this with... You know, my own policing career, you know, working in the community, you know, we, we get the success that we get from a policing point of view because of the consent and the assistance of the community. You know, you can't be everywhere, so you rely on community support, uh, community engagement uh, to, to actually, uh, you know, achieve the results that you, that you do. From a legacy point of view, if I had if anything... Perhaps you show people there's a better way of doing it you know there's a better way to live there's a better way of of controlling behavior there's mechanisms that if you do the right thing all of the time and you you you're not corrupt and you people have confidence in you and the like uh, you will get the support of the people it takes time it takes investment and the like but you've really got to go you know from a legacy point of view you just hope that they perhaps have a bit of a glimpse of That's a way of doing business instead of, you know, ruling with fear and violence uh, and the like, because, you know, that might get you an immediate result, but it doesn't get you any long-term result or the support of the people, and, and neither should
1: it. Now, you obviously returned back to Australia, and today you're the commander of the 9th Brigade. Now, 9th Brigade's been through a very busy period with Operation Bushfire Assist back in 2019, 2020, Operation COVID Assist. What's been your experience of this this intense period of activity for the Brigade?
0: You know, and I I reflect back, you know, something I said earlier, you know, the people who joined today were far smarter and uh, far more savvy and far more skilled, far better educated than I ever was. So when I came back from Afghanistan, I went into Career Management Army and, and I guess uh, I did three years there and it was a fantastic opportunity. I really enjoyed that. And uh, and again, it was, you know, a good opportunity to shape and um, assist Army getting to where it needed to be with the right people, right place, right time. But I always reflect, you know, it was you know, hot days, you know, of course, tracking bushfires everywhere, which I would do in my civilian job. Uh, I was coming in as the deputy commander of the 9th Brigade, a posting that I was very much looking forward to because I'd seen some of the work that was being done there and the like. You know, the commander at the time was Brigadier uh, Damien Cantwell, uh, who I'd met previously in my CMA days and the like, so we'd sort of laid a bit of a foundation there. And, and then I remember uh, there was a box, you know a box of your chattels you know your your pads and your pens and your you know worldly things, you know, probably junk actually, uh, that you, you take with you. And, and I remember uh, taking it to my office and uh, I was looking for an office and I didn't have one, so I kicked out the lawyers uh, that were in an office. So uh, uh, they saw the funny side, but that's okay. Um, so I put the box down and um, and you could just see all these things coming and then the commander, brigadier Campbell rang me and said, I'm flying over, we think that things are going to occur and all the rest of it now. I jokingly say four months later, I unpacked that box. You know, uh, and it was just, you know, of course you wish you didn't have to do these things. Of course you you wish there there was no fire or flood or COVID or uh, whatever, but there is, you know, and as I say, you know, They used to say death and taxes are the guaranteed things. Well, I think natural disasters, uh, you know, is the third tier of that now. And We've seen so much of it and there's been such tragic loss of life, tragic loss of property and animals and the like. It's just, um, it would weigh very heavily on people who have been through this two or three times and we need to recognise that. But I guess uh, you're in this position and I I guess I had a lot of connection uh, with the emergency services and the like. It's just so refreshing and reassuring that when uh, you're called upon to actually provide some assistance, whether it be a small thing, whether it be a big thing, uh, that everybody irrespective of who they were where they were you know what skill sets they bring and all the rest of it they were ready to assist and uh, you know the CFS at the time were doing a magnificent job Uh, you know the police were doing a magnificent job the other emergency support services were doing a magnificent job and all the rest of it so it was a great thing to support them in in their endeavors to protect people save people you know assist in uh, some of the recovery efforts and the like now it's gone on for a long time you know we we sort of finished or came to a bit of an end of, of our involvement in the in the bushfire, particularly you know Kangaroo Island and uh, up in the hills, and then we sort of rolled straight into COVID. It is what it is, and, and it's you know you don't get to choose or pick your when you when you lead or when you when you provide support or you don't provide support. It's 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 an, an enduring thing, and um, uh, you know as I say, you wish it never occurred, but it was a great thing to be able to just assist people, you know, just make a contribution, you know, provide a bit of comfort and confidence at those critical times. And you should never underestimate just actually turning up and having a cup of tea with somebody or or having a chat with somebody on a checkpoint or driving a truck and sort of going, do you need some water or something like that or dropping a bit of hay off or whatever. You know, these things in, in the scheme of things are probably pretty small and all the rest of it, but I think it just provided you know, as part of the complete response, you know, and as I say, you know, we were a very much a support act to the CFS, you know, the SES in the, in the floods, health and police during COVID and all the rest of it, you know, we need to be very clear on that. You know, we just play a small part in, in I think, you know, providing a bit of comfort to the to the community at a time when people are scared, you know, people are scared and people are concerned and people are worried. And uh, that's a great thing to be able to do. And, and you know, and that's, that's the thing that uh, we should always remember, that that's what we bring to the table. Yes, we train for big spectrum, high spectrum war fighting activities, but uh, we also serve the nation, uh, serve and protect the nation. So uh, it's, it's a good thing to be involved uh, and, and to, to, to have made a contribution along those lines.
1: Looking back over that time, and then your career as a whole in the Australian Army, you've seen such a change in how reservists are deployed. How would you summarise that perhaps for people who are listening to the podcast that are not familiar with how that works, and, and really from your own experience, how you've now had that shift in identity to some degree?
0: I guess for a long time it was just really unclear, like particularly in the reserve space, the Circat Five space. You know, what what do you bring to the table? What are you, you know, what are your skills, knowledge, skills, and attributes, and all the rest of it? How how I sort of rational, it, it, you've got to be relevant. You've got to bring something to the table. You've got to be relevant, and and. and Go from there. I mean, I mean, I, I have people who work for me. They're orthopedic surgeons. You know, I have people who are arborists. Uh, I have people who are nurses. Uh, the breadth of of the skills that they bring to the table is immense. And so, when they're confronted with a problem or a or or something that needs to be solved or how you're going to address these things and all the rest of it, they can make a contribution. So therefore you are a valued member around that table. I reflect on that very heavily, you know, and like particularly during bushfire and COVID and the like, you had reservists working alongside regular full-time members and, and all the rest of it. And I can tell you there was not one issue, not one problem, and then that group working alongside police and CFS and SES and the like, not one issue. You know, we come from the community, as does the the wider Defence Force. And so we can therefore associate with be a member of that community and make a contribution to that. So I think, uh, you know, for me, what, what has been so fantastic out of all of these tragedies is that you know, we are now looking at a sense of purpose and a sense of contribution and a sense of uh, relevance uh, to what what's our role and, and function. Now, that comes with baggage too. It comes with expectation, you know. So uh, we just need to make sure we train our people, we give them all the correct tools and the knowledge uh, that, that they need uh, and I need to make them better people, you know. Uh, I often talk about that through all of our training activities and the like because if they're better people, uh, they'll be a better person for defence but they'll also be a better person at home and they'll also be a better person for the employer and all the rest of it. And that's what I think is our point of difference. Community spirit, community engagement and we are a volunteer to assist in the protection of the nation
1: so i have to ask the question given your lifetime of service not only to the australian defence force and also to the south australia police have you become a better person
0: oh or- look i think so as i say you know the person yeah that was a 17 year old and all the rest of it you know has changed a lot uh, i've learned a lot i continue to learn and this is none of this is about me you know you, you, as i say you you walk out and you see the people who are actually doing the task and the role, and I saw it in Afghanistan, and I saw it in East Timor. I saw it on the borders uh, during COVID. I saw it in Kangaroo Island, uh, uh, you know, it, with the bushfires and the working with the farmers and the livestock. I saw it in the Adelaide Hills, uh, you know, with the great work that the 16th uh, Regiment was doing up there, you know, because they're very much a, a part of it there. You can't but help become a better person. It levels you, it grounds you. Um, it it actually takes you to a place where things that you thought were important previously are not that important now. And when you have a look at your mates and your family and, and, and making a contribution and not letting people down, those are the things that are important, you know. And these are some of the things, you know, as we you know, come together and amalgamate some of our forces with One Brigade, you know, they're some of the things that I really want to instil in people about uh, the impact that you can have not only on uh, operations overseas and domestically but, but within the local community as well.
1: So for young people listening to your story today who might be considering following in your footsteps, they might see themselves as the future commander of 9th Brigade or indeed another formation within the Australian Defence Force. What would would you say to them? What's your advice?
0: There's a lot to choose from in life now. There's a a, a lot of activities to choose. We're a very connected society. There's a lot to offer and all the rest of it. What I say, and and, and I mean, as I say, I, I am a you know, started off as a soldier and, you know, ended ended where I've ended and all the rest of it. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. Let me uh, reassure you uh, about that. But what I say is this, is that it's good to be challenged. You know, it's good to be challenged. It's good to be a part of a team. It's good to be relied upon, uh, but it's also good to be, make a contribution. I work in a lot of high functioning teams and the like. But I guess uh, you know what I say to everybody um, you know that may be thinking uh, of of joining uh, the army or joining the defence force and the like. It's great to make a contribution. You know, it's great to be a part of a team. Uh, it's great to make a contribution as part of that team. It's great to work in the community and and do things locally here or it's great to work in in communities uh, overseas uh, and and make a difference. And that's a point of difference uh, for for us. It's that community spirit. It's that challenging yourself uh, to what's your role and what's your position uh, in that and to challenge yourself uh, and to make a difference. Um, And, you know, by doing those things, as I said earlier, I think you become a better person and you know becoming a better person actually is a point of difference for you um, in your civilian world and the like and you know i i I am constantly reminded about people who work have another job or whatever uh, and they are held in very high regard within their employment circle and all the rest of it And I'd like to think that defence has something to do with that as well. So, uh, you know, what's my advice? Give it a go. It's a great environment for people to grow.
1: Brigadier Graham Goodwin, CSC, thank you very much for sharing your insight, your experiences, and indeed your story of service with Life on the Line.
0: I've been very privileged that's not lost on me uh you know at any time uh, or any day but uh i I look after a lot of fantastic people and uh uh, they do the hard work and uh, i'm just very lucky to be in this position uh, to look after them to enable them to do the things that they do so thank you for your time and it's uh it's great to have a chat
1: you've been listening to life on the line i'm sharon maskeldair thank you for listening Find out more about this podcast at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and join the conversation on social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram
0: and at lotlpod on Twitter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...